please open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue our study in Mark chapter 3. And we've arrived at verses 13 to 19, which provide a record of Jesus selecting 12 of the disciples who will later become known as apostles. As the title of our message indicates, these were 12 hand-picked men by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to take this Sunday and next to study the significance of Christ's selection of these men. And notice what I said there, the significance of Christ's selection, not the significance of these men themselves. Many are familiar with the book that Pastor John MacArthur authored called Twelve Ordinary Men. And the point that he makes in the book is that these men were all characterized by one unifying aspect, and that is that they were ordinary. They were everyday guys. At the beginning of the book, Dr. MacArthur even asked the question, if you were going to recruit a a, a team to alter the course of history, how would you begin? Interesting question to think about. Who would you select to be on your team? I think that if we're honest, and we're we're talking about having the greatest impact on the world, from, from our perspective, we would think about choosing perhaps the most talented people or those who are born with special natural gifts, right? Dr. MacArthur goes on to ask, have you ever considered who Jesus didn't choose for his inner circle? He didn't select a rabbi. He didn't recruit scholars. He didn't look within the religious establishment to build his team. Any of these would have given him an inside track with those in power. Instead, he assembled a ragtag bunch of folks with unimpressive resumes. End quote. Maybe you're a young person here today, and you you don't believe that the Lord has gifted you. Or you're tempted to think that somehow you're too ordinary to have an impact on the world. Maybe you're an older person here with us that has lived and been a a victim really of holding the same mentality. Or perhaps you're on the flip side and you're a parent who's placing so much emphasis on education and giftedness for you or your children to have the greatest impact on the world. As we'll see, it's God's plan to use those who are ordinary. Jesus wasn't looking for religious superiority. He wasn't looking for extraordinary talent, but he was looking for ordinary people who would be faithful to follow him and to trust him. I'm going to pray and just ask that the Lord would bless our study. Please join me. Gracious Father, I ask for your help right now as we look to your word, that you would help us to look to you and to see all that you would have us see about the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that he extends through the gospel. Thank you for allowing our hearts to be born again. Those of us who believe, who have trusted in you, you have given us a new nature. You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. And we want to accurately see you. At the same time, we also want to see our responsibility. Help us to know what you would have us do. Help us to be strengthened in our walk, strengthened in our area of conviction, 
so that we can continue to be faithful. I pray, Father, that you would bless our time as we study your word together and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our focus is going to be on verses 13 through 19 of chapter 3, and let's read our passage together. Starting in verse 13 in the NAS, it says this, And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him. And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boadnerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. At first glance, our passage doesn't have any direct application. There's not a, a command that's given uh, in, in this passage for us. But it does allow us to continue our study of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we study the near and the far context, we should ask questions such as, why is this passage in the Bible? What does God want us to see? You may have even noticed that the sermon proposition that's in your notes comes in question form this week. What principles can you and I learn from Jesus' four-part approach to handpicking his 12 disciples? Jesus' ministry is continuing to grow, and we've gained a sense of this just even in the near context. If we look back at verse 7 of this chapter, it says that a great multitude, literally a mega crowd, is, is following them. People are gathering from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edumia, Tyre, Sidon, and from across the Jordan. They were all coming to see Jesus. And we, we even looked at a map to see how this was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles that were coming from all directions. And the crowd is growing rapidly, so much so that if you look down at verse 20, it says that when he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. This is crazy. It is, it is thousands of people. Jesus is literally preaching the gospel and ministering to thousands. It is, it's even escalated to the point that if you look at verse 21, it reveals that his own family heard of this and went out to restrain him, and they were concerned for his well-being. They were thinking that he lost his senses. Who would do this? Who in their right mind would minister day after day and night after night? giving of their time and their energy and their effort to thousands. In a very practical sense, Jesus needs some help from others who can minister with him. Not so much for his sake, but as we see, for the crowd's sake. There are people who are trying to get to him who can't reach him. He's also trying to, I'm, I'm sure, honor his family who might have genuine concern for his well-being. So what does he do? Let's tackle our first point in first verse to find out. Jesus personally called the twelve. Look at the beginning of verse 13. 
And he went up on the mountain. Stop here for a moment. This is all the detail that Mark provides. It is the shortest of the three synoptic gospels. Only 16 chapters. Matthew is 28 chapters. Luke is 24. And so often is the case, Mark, which has often been described as the newspaper version, it's missing some of the details. So we can be blessed by looking at the other Uh, the other accounts, as is the case here. In Luke's parallel account, it says this in Luke 6, 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Pretty significant detail. He didn't just go up the mountain, as, as Mark shares, but Luke provides the additional insight. He's a doctor again. He's used to recording all those details. And he says that he went up the mountain to, to pray, not just to pray for a moment, not just to spend a couple hours in prayer. He actually prayed all through the night. Because choosing the disciples was such a big decision. Jesus prayed all night about it. He went away by himself where the crowd could not reach him. And he spent time with the Father in communion and prayer. Jesus selected to pray during a time while others were sleeping. While there were no distractions or disruptions. Jesus made a personal reservation to be with the Father and to pray. What principles can you and I learn from Jesus? Let's consider a couple. First, Jesus got away to pray. Nobody had more demands on their life than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he made time to distance himself from those demands so that he could spend time praying. And to some degree, we're all pressured people too, regularly facing the demands of life. We're we're surrounded by the same noisy, needy, and distracting world. And some of us even... Embrace it by choice. R. Kent Hughes said, Too many of us wake up to a clock radio, shave to the news, drive through noisy traffic, work in the din of the office, listen to the rush hour reports, relax to the evening news, and drift off to sleep surrounded by the thumping bass of the family stereo. When we should, when we need silence and solitude. All the mothers who are in the room that have young children, especially if you have more than one, you, you can relate to, the, to, to the, the noise and the distractions. Sometimes that our kids are saying, Mom, Mom, all day. Mom, Mom, I need this. Mom. And then cries and then screams and, and things that take place, right? And so solitude and silence. I know what you're thinking. Give me that place. I want that place. And as Marcus exhorted us when he preached on prayer and covered it uh, just at the retreat last weekend, we have to find that place. We have to make that place. He he said you may have to go out to your car uh, and, and shut the door. You may have to go on a walk by yourself in the park. You may have to go to the bathroom, shut the door and lock it, right? The great escape. Like Jesus, we need to find a place where the distractions are minimized and the prayer time is maximized. And you've heard it before and it bears repeating. If Jesus had to do this, being the eternal son, 
how much more do we adopted sons and daughters need to follow his example? A second lesson to learn, the bigger the decision, the more prayer that should go into it. Our Lord spent all night praying beforehand. Jesus is about to hand-select 12 men who will serve as extensions of his ministry and authority. And as we'll eventually see, the apostles fulfill a huge role and provide a foundation to the church in their writings, by their examples and ministries, even in their sufferings and death. This is a huge decision in the sovereign plan of God. Certainly the Lord's example should make us mindful of the importance of praying for those big decisions in our life. Major ministry decisions, career changes, who we date, who we marry, who we allow to come into the circle of influence in our lives. Big decisions. And all these decisions need extended prayer time as we determine the Lord's will. Our Lord spent all night praying beforehand. And then we see that he pursues the twelve afterwards. Look at the middle of verse 13. And he summoned those whom he himself wanted. You may recall that when we studied Mark chapter 1 verses 16 through 20, that it was not common for rabbis to call their disciples. But rabbis were chosen by their disciples. Just the same way that college students today pick the university that you're going to attend or the degree that you're going to study. So Jesus breaks the mold and his discipleship ministry continues to run counterculturally. In that same passage in Mark chapter 1, if you'll recall, Jesus at that point in time selected how many men? How many men? Do you remember? Four. Peter and Andrew, James and John. And our passage today is going to supply the remaining eight names. Our verse uses the verb summon or called, depending on your English translation. And this is very emphatic in the Greek. The sense is that Jesus summoned those whom he willed. And the point that we need to see is that Jesus determines the call. And here we see the sovereign will of God on full display. The disciples did not decide to follow Jesus and do him a favor by doing so, but it's exactly opposite. Jesus' call supersedes their wills and his sovereignty. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice the last name on the list in verse 19 includes Judas Iscariot, who would eventually betray him. Does this mean that Jesus called Judas Iscariot in the same way that he did the rest of the disciples? It's a good question, and I want to help you answer it. When it comes to Christ's call, a distinction needs to be made between the sovereign will of God and the sovereign election of God. Both come underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Both the elect and the non-elect serve God's purposes according to the sovereignty of his decreed will. Okay? Both. Both the elect and non-elect serve God's purposes according to the sovereignty of his decreed will. And this is what allows Jesus in John 15, 16 to say to his elect disciples that you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And that at whatever you would ask in my name, the Father would give to you. And at the same time, in Matthew 26, 24, to say to Judas that the betrayer that would be better off if you had never been born. When we see the distinction between the sovereign will of God and the sovereign election of God, it helps us to understand how both the elect and non-elect serve God's purposes according to the sovereignty of his decreed will. Verse 13 concludes with the response to Jesus at the end. It says, and they came to him. In, in the Greek, this compound verb implies separation. D. Edmund Hebert says, it was a definite call to them to leave the uncommitted crowd and take their stand with him as his disciples, which is going to lead us to the second part of Jesus' four-part approach to handpicking his disciples. Jesus personally discipled the 12. Look at the beginning of verse 14. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. Again, at first glance, it doesn't look like much is being said here. But when we look at the parallel verse in Luke 6, 13, it says, and when day came, because why? When day came, remember, he was praying all night. When day comes, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. And this helps us see three things. First, that Jesus had more than 12 followers at this point in, this, in his ministry. We don't know the exact number. We don't even have a ballpark number. Nor should we confuse his true followers with the large crowd that keeps seeking Jesus. Second, we see that of, out of all the disciples that Jesus had, that he specifically handpicked 12. Why 12? We're actually going to spend time next Sunday answering that question, but we need to stay on course. The third thing we see here is that Jesus is personally committed to making these 12 men his disciples. It's interesting that both in the NAS and the ESV, it uses the word appointed, but the, the Greek verb is better rendered to make. Our verse is literally saying, Jesus made 12 the commentator offered this strong insight that I believe reflects the concept of discipleship very well. He said, discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. Read that again for you. Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. And I like that statement because it helps us see that discipleship is theocentric. It's not man-centered. And this doesn't mean that there isn't a human responsibility because as believers we're called to make disciples, but it reminds us that the fruit of discipleship flows out of Christ's work in the life of a believer. It's evidence of our faith. It's evidence that you know Christ, that you love Christ, that you serve Christ, that you have a life that is committed to Christ. That is how important discipleship is. And we know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John have been following the Lord since Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. We don't know the exact amount of time that has transpired since then. And now the remaining eight disciples are selected. And so we see that they're at this embryonic stage of development in their discipleship relationship with Jesus. 
Now Jesus is going to spend more concentrated time with them, with all 12. Or as Mark 3.14 states, he made them disciples that they would be with him. And the Greek tense indicates that the disciples will continually or habitually be with Jesus. Luke 6.13 shares that they were disciples. Mathetes, we've talked about this word before in the Greek. They were followers of Christ and they'll continue to cultivate an even greater intimacy with the Lord as they followed him in ministry. So as on the surface, as insignificant as this prepositional phrase to be with him might appear at first glance, the same commentator who I alluded to moments ago, he says this simple prepositional phrase to be with him has atomic significance in the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. It is a who before a what. If, as Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5 indicates, the essence of sin is substituting a false god for the true god, being with Jesus becoming the way, becomes the way of forsaking human idols and honoring the true God, thus recovering the image of God. And he cites Genesis 1, 26 and 27. To be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. From now on, his person and his work determine the existence of the twelve. You've heard me say it from this pulpit before, and I'll say it again. Jesus does not desire to be part of anyone's life. He wants to be the point of your life. He is the driving purpose behind a believer's life. And grasping this concept, this concept helps expose idolatrous and false thinking about Christ and discipleship. As our commentator shared, from now on, Christ's person and work determines the existence. It's the very reality of why the twelve are there. Does Christ's person and work determine your existence? Is your life and my life centered on our relationship with him. I shared it at the retreat at the beginning last week that we must fight to keep our focus on him. That the world is constantly throwing things our way that distort and blur the image of Christ. And it involves us constantly refocusing. And the world wants to draw us away from that relationship. And it's a spiritual battle. You know, I liken it to, have you ever played a game, or maybe you've seen on a movie, or played a video game where it's fighter pilots, and uh, one plane's following the plane? You ever seen the, where they're, they're trying to lock in on the plane, and it's doing the beep, 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 you know, and, 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 and we just, it's a, it's a fight, right? They're trying to lock in on the target, and then beep, 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 beep and then they, they, they get it. They're locked in. That's a picture of what we do. That's a picture of our battle as we focus on Christ, as we stay on target. And it's ongoing. Everything in the life of the believer flows out of the relationship that we have with him. Our proximity to him determines our proximity to others. Our proximity to him determines our ministry effectiveness. 
And we see this reality unfold as the disciples get commissioned as apostles who will continue the very same ministry that Jesus has been doing, which we'll see under our next point. But before we move on, we, we need to answer our question. What principles can we take away from our second point as Jesus personally discipled the twelve? Let me say this first and most significantly. Proximity to Christ is the key to effective discipleship relationships. Proximity to Christ is the key to effective discipleship relationships. Everything flows out of that. Everything in the Christian life flows out of your nearness to him. Everything. Husbands, you want to disciple your wives? You want your marriage to thrive? You want to have a spiritual connection with your spouse? It is contingent on your proximity to him and how you are doing spiritually and how close you are drawing. And yes, her responsibility to draw near to him as well. You want to disciple your children. Your proximity, fathers, to the Lord Jesus Christ will determine your effectiveness in your discipleship with your children. You'll draw near to him. And as a result, your nearness to him will serve as fuel as you love your children and long to desire to disciple them and point them to the one whom your own heart is enamored with. Everything flows out of it. You want to be effective in your workplace as a witness. Your proximity to Christ will allow you to be strengthened in your conviction, in your courage, in your willingness, right? When you see Christ's function and boldness, And with urgency and immediacy, he, our our nearness to him, will allow us to to be effective in our ministry to others. And Christ even lets us know that, that if we love him, we will love others. It's straightforward. The second thing I want to add, it's not about the quantity of many relationships, but the quality of a few relationships. See, the world that we live in, what do they base their, uh, the, relation, the relation success that you have as a human being? How many followers do you have on Facebook? You know, how many followers do you have on Twitter, Instagram? It's radically, radically different for the Christian Who is your go-to person for spiritual encouragement when the storms of life hit? Who do you go to when you're struggling with sin and need to confess it? Who do you have spiritual intimacy with? Who do you open up your heart to? Think about that. Every person. Who, who is it? Identify. It's so important in discipleship. Who are you willing to, to uh, spiritual intimacy? I've said this before. Into me see. Who do you reveal your heart to? And peel back the layers and say, I struggle with this. I am so weak here. I need your prayers and support here. 
You know what that transparency does? It will allow you to say to another believer, I have never told anyone this before, ever. But I struggle. Will you partner with me? Can you help me here? And it's no secret that our church is a church of care groups, that we have a ministry, and yeah, we take a break for the summers, but now that the fall's starting back up, we'll, we'll, we're going to launch our care group ministry and get it back going in, in October. But it is the opportunity for that environment to exist. And so maybe if you're someone here and you're like, I've never had any type of environment like that where it was even made possible. I want you to consider and prayerfully consider pursuing a care group ministry. I'll say this, for those that have been in care group, and maybe you've said, you know what, even after being in care group for a couple years, I don't ever feel like I've come to that place. Would you prayerfully consider coming to that place at the beginning of this new ministry year so that you can open up? So that you can disciple. And you know what you will do when you open up? You will disciple others as well. It helps them to see and to look into their own life. Helps them to see with clarity. Our growth in discipleship prepares us for serving the Lord in future ministry. Personal spiritual growth allows us to make personal spiritual investments into the lives of others. We get to teach others what we have learned from Jesus and can lead them by example. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did with the twelve as he began preparing them for future ministry, which leads us to our third point. Jesus personally commissioned the 12. Look back at verse 14. And he made 12 so that, and the so that is the purpose statement that serves a dual purpose here. First, that they would be with him to get discipled. And second, that he could send them out. That's, that's the dual purpose right there, that they could be with him to be discipled and that eventually that he could send them out. That's the purpose. They would be sent out to do two things, to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. Let's talk about preaching the gospel in verse 14 first. The Greek word translated preach is the same word used of Christ's proclamation of the gospel of God in Mark 1.14. And it means to herald or proclaim. And the 12 would be sent out to make public proclamations to preach the gospel. The gospel is the only saving message that points desperate and depraved mankind to the only one who can save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the 12 have heard Jesus preach and they've heard him day after day point people to himself. And now they have the opportunity to go out and preach and they're going to point others to him. And their proclamation is not the verbalizing of their subjective experience, but it's making known the saving activity of God through Christ. It's not about what the disciples think or feel, but what they've seen and heard that is the subject of their proclamation. Jesus did what? He preached that the kingdom of God is at hand, And now they have the opportunity to preach and let other people know to take that hand. It's in that hand. You want the kingdom of God? It's in his hand. We're pointing you to that hand. 
Only if you take Jesus by the hand and trust in him completely. By faith and repentance can you be saved. And it's the same message that we're commissioned to proclaim today. Have you taken Jesus Christ by the hand? Have you personally taken Jesus Christ by the the hand? When? When? When did you... When did you take Jesus Christ by the hand? When did you go all in for the Lord Jesus Christ? When did you start trusting him? Make no mistake about it and take nothing for granted. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. Deceptively wicked. And that's why the scriptures call us in Philippians 2.12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to make sure that our faith, when, and that you would know, and you would know that you would know that you have trusted completely in Christ. For without him, the world will never make sense. We even prayed about it at the beginning of this service. The, 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 the darkened, fallen world will never make sense. Until you take Christ by the hand, you will never be able to see with clarity. It's, it's the noetic effect of the, mall, of the, of the fall. It's the, it's the, the, the noose, the mind in the, in the Greek. It's darkened. You cannot see. The best you can do if you're trying to pick up your own life and get your life in order is rearrange the furniture in the dark. You need light, my friend. And Jesus isn't asking you to get your life in order before you come to him. He's saying, you need me now and trust me now. Take me by the hand. Repent today. Go all in. Trust in me. Trust in me today is what the Lord is teaching. And may the certainty of your faith be nailed down in your life as certain as the nails that pierced his hands and feet. That you are clinging to Christ alone each and every day. And it is spiritually healthy for us to use the commands that God's given us to test ourselves. To probe our own hearts. Am I living in belief? Or am I functioning in unbelief? True disciples of Christ will progress in evangelism and discipleship. And that's why we see that it's a a ministry pillar For our church, there's going to be progress. Practically, progressing means sharing the gospel more and more. But again, this requires that we would be intentional. It's been a while, actually, since we've had our uh, evangelism training that we had a while back in equipping hour. Might be due to have a refresher training training coming up um, in equipping hour. But those who went through it, you'll recall that there was three P words that uh, we focused on that were based out of Colossians 4.2, that we would pray, pursue, proclaim. That we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the Lord's leading to pray for those that he burdens our heart, that they would come to faith in Christ and to pray, and to pray for them. And that we would pursue open doors, that the Lord would open up avenues and opportunities for us to build a relationship to them and to connect with them. And then to have the opportunity to proclaim, 
to give them the truth that they need to hear. That today is the day of salvation. And that you have to come to God on God's terms. You can't come to him on yours. It won't work. By divine design, it won't work. We need to pray. We need to pursue. We need to proclaim. And then you know what we need to do? We need to pray some more. We need to pray that it falls on fertile soil, that it takes root down into the heart, and that's what we have an opportunity, second hour. If you're burdened for somebody, you'll have an opportunity to, to pray. We just need, we need to pray for them. Pray. Pray that they need, that they'll see their need for Christ to save them. Not only did Christ send out the disciples to preach the gospel, but he also sent them out for another reason. Look back at verse 15. He also sent them out to have authority to cast out the demons. Again, this is an extension of Christ's authority that he gives specifically to these 12 hand-picked men and that he would also give to the 70 that he sent out in advance where he was going to minister in Luke chapter 10. Preaching and casting out demons was a trademark of Christ's ministry that gets clearly stated all the way back in Mark 139, where it says, And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And it's here where some who have a Pentecostal or charismatic background will disagree that this authority is limited to Christ and to the apostles. And some will even try to claim that believers today have the authority to cast out demons. As John MacArthur states, those who attempt to cast out demons today all share something in common. And it's called bad theology. And he says that, he does not say that in a derogatory sense. He says that in the most loving and gracious way to let them know that that. And he appreciates all of us who aren't caught up in, in aberrant teaching and theology. That We just celebrate the grace of God, right? Don't we? For allowing us to see the truth and to practice the truth. And the reality is that the Bible speaks very little about demons. Demons are mentioned only three times in the Old Testament, always connected to false sacrifices, not even in possession of, of people. In the New Testament, there is a heightened occurrence directly connected to opposition against the Lord's and the Apostles' gospel preaching ministry. But beyond this, we see little to no mention of demon possession mentioned in the New Testament epistles. There is not one single verse that commands or directs believers to continually cast out demons. If anything, we should be cautious of anyone who associates with such theology. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Not only false teaching influenced by demons, but even the doctrine of demons. The actual teaching on demons. What better way to get sidetracked from the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that demon possession isn't real, nor am I saying that it doesn't occur today. 
But when it comes to a New Testament believer's ministry, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. When it comes to a New Testament believer's ministry, what we are called to do is to pray and to proclaim the gospel. And any effect that that has on demons or the authority of a spiritual realm and world that that we cannot see, that's between, God's got that battle, right? He's got that one taken care of. We just need to be faithful to what he's calling us to do. In the end, the reason why Jesus gave his apostles the authority to cast out demons was because it extended Christ's authority and it authenticated Christ's message. And you may find this interesting. And if you have the ESV translation, you may have noticed that in verse 14, there's a parenthetical statement that says in the verse, whom he also named apostles. Anyone notice that? Anyone with the ESV translation? A few people out there. That, that, that language right there isn't in the, the original language, that, that parenthetical statement. But it is pulled from, some, from somewhere. The reason that the statement is included is because the verb send them out or sent them out, mentioned in verse 14, is apostello. It's, it's, it's the same verb, and we get the cognate, we get apostolos, apostles who were sent ones, right? And this is the verb form. And so the ESV translators seem to share a similar Reformed theological position and opted to include this statement, helping people understand the specific designation that casting out demons was something that the apostles had the authority to do. Pretty interesting, and we'll learn more about that term, apostolos, that they, that they were sent, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. So Jesus, having called, established a relationship, having modeled, having taught them, having showed them personally how to cast out demons, then gives authority to the twelve, enabling them to cast out demons. This was an extension of his authority over demons, and it also authenticated their gospel proclamation. But we need to remember that the, the giving of the authority over demons didn't happen until a bit later. First, they needed training and discipleship. And this is why I even opted to use the word disciples in the sermon proposition today, rather than apostles. They need to learn and grow as disciples before they could embrace their apostolic roles. Just like teaching someone gun safety before giving them a loaded weapon. Jesus first established a relationship, then he taught and led them by example. Only then did he give them the loaded weapon of his authority to cast out demons. And our time is up. What principles can you learn from Jesus' four-part approach to handpicking his twelve? Jesus personally called the twelve. If you're a believer, Jesus personally called you. Jesus personally discipled the twelve. If you're a believer, Jesus personally disciples you. Jesus personally commissioned the twelve. If you're a believer, Jesus personally has commissioned you.
And next Sunday, we'll cover our final point when we look at the broad context and the significance of Jesus personally identifying the 12. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads, thanking you for the ministry of your word, helping us to see with clarity. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to know and understand exactly what it is that you would have us see as it relates to our ministry effectiveness. We thank you for Christ, your son, who has in every way allowed us to see and to learn and to grow in our understanding of discipleship. And it's about intimate relationships. It's about spiritual, life-on-life, soul-quality relationships. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that is progressing in evangelism and discipleship, which is a ministry pillar of our church. Help us to be more effective for your namesake. I pray now, Father, just as we conclude our service, that you would also allow us to come to you by faith in prayer and to lift up these prayer requests of our church family to circle up with fellow brothers and sisters and to cry out that you would be at work in the lives of those who are looking to you for discipleship and guidance. We also pray that you'll hear our prayers as we cry out for unsaved family and friends. Oh, Father, would you save them? Would you bring them to the end of themselves? Would you allow them to see their desperate condition without you? Would you not allow them to go another day that they would repent, that they would ask you for forgiveness and say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm done with my life on my own terms, but I'm coming to you on yours. Father, we pray that you would use these prayers in conjunction with your will. We give you thanks and praise, and we look forward to the next opportunity that we have to rally around your word and the gospel of Mark. We praise you and thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.